Welcome to the 401st episode of the Jamie Delaney Plant-Based Wellness Podcast. My name is Jamie Delaney, and I'm your host. I'm a plant-based cardiologist and endurance athlete living in Southwest Florida. Thanks for listening. It's hot and humid. I say that every time. It's hot and humid here in Florida. Training for a marathon the second week, first, second week of October, trail race, followed by a swim run, followed by a marathon, followed by a 50 Okay, 50 miler, I don't know. So my cross training right now, I haven't got to the tire pull as uh, I discussed in previous podcasts, but I am shoveling mulch. I had about three to four loads of mulch delivered um, by the tree trucks. And so every night it's me in a wagon and a shovel. So that's my cross training. Don't know exactly what it's working, but I gotta tell you my quads are sore after running like I've run a marathon. So it's gotta be doing something. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna take it that shoveling mulch is a good cr- cross training exercise. So after dinner, it's me in the wheelbarrow and then um, into rest. So that's, that's kind of how we're going now. Trees are all been put to sleep. We can still have some papayas, have some peppers, but for the most part, it's hot and humid in Florida and we're just waiting for the weather to cool off so we can get more things planted. So it's run, podcast work, shovel mulch. And that's pretty much my routine. And I have a routine in the morning. I, I lay out my clothes before for my run in the morning. Um, I get up and do a little bit of work, have a cup of coffee, and Sophie and I go out for a run. So it's pretty good because I get my run out. Uh, everything's kind of scattered, just like brushing your teeth. And that makes it easy. One thing I don't and I'm not doing is working on my book. So... Um, It sits there, and every month or so, I write a couple pages, and I just am procrastinating. And so that is somewhat of the podcast today uh, associated. I want to talk a little bit about atrial fibrillation and how that relates to this as well. But first of all, procrastination. Some people say you procrastinate because you're anxious about doing something. Uh, For the most part, people make excuses, right? Um, Don't want to really do something, so you have all kinds of reasons not to. I find that I do better when I kind of have a fire and a time limit. So when everything is, you know, rush, rush, I tend to be more productive. But procrastination can really you know, uh, obviously um, put a wrench in getting certain things accomplished. And not only if it's finishing a book, but it's also changing your diet, starting an exercise program, getting something that you really would like to do accomplished. And your anxiety kind of tells you about the thing, you know, how many things you can do just not to get it started. Maybe nobody will like the book. Maybe it's not the right book to write. What if I spend all this time and it's not the right thing? Wonder if you change your diet and you really don't have to become plant-based and you do all this for nothing and you still get sick. You know, so your mind can play tricks on you while you don't do anything. So the cure is to do it. So the first step is to actually do something. And we all have strategies that help us get things that we actually need to do accomplished. Going out for my run, I lay my clothes out before. So we have certain strategies. Um, You know, I do better with dinner if I have a menu, if I have a plan in mind. If I know what I'm going to cook, it takes the anxiety about coming home and looking in the refrigerator and what am I going to get on the table. I have everything. I've shopped for it. It's, It's ready to go. 
Sometimes the first strategy is recognizing why you don't do what you do and recognizing the excuses that you typically make. So if you all of a sudden see the excuses, I've had somebody come into the office and say, I've got a dozen excuses, and they go through the excuses of why they're not doing it. Well, if you just list them and you don't act on them, it doesn't really help. So you have to recognize the excuses early on and put that excuse fire out right up front. Sometimes you have to draw a fence around something. So when I became plant-based, I actually became vegan. So I was not going to eat animals, both from an ethical standpoint as well as a health standpoint. So it gave me more than one reason to look for animal products as well as plant-based choices. So I didn't go to Starbucks and see the coffee cake there and say, well, I can't see the eggs, so maybe they're not in there so I can eat it. I pretty much knew there were eggs in that coffee cake, so because there were eggs in the coffee cake, I can't eat the coffee cake. I'm not going to eat birthday cake at the grocery store if somebody brings it to a party because I know that's made with butter, eggs, all those other kind of things. So if somebody brings a dessert, I know right up front that that's something that I'm not going to touch. So it helps me. It takes the temptation for me having just a bite away because it has animal products in it. So I put a fence around it. So I think that's a good way to recognize a response, recognize some, some strategy that you can have for not completing your task. We have nutrition class in the office as part of our membership. We Zoom them. Uh, so people can watch at home, they can watch at their leisure because we put them up on our members-only website, and we have in-class nutrition classes. And when I first started the nutrition classes, I actually charged a fee because we didn't have a membership practice, and it was a nominal fee, but it was enough skin in the game that all the people showed up for all the classes the whole time. There might have been one person that really didn't want to do it, and they signed up and didn't show up, but for the most part... When people had skin in the game and when people paid for the nutrition classes, they showed up and they paid attention. Now, everybody gets to come to the nutrition classes or have the opportunity as part of their membership. And we had three nutrition classes at one point, and now that's fallen off. And largely, I believe that it's, again, it's you've already paid... It's no big deal. I get them anyway. I don't worry about them. So, you know, it's part of my membership that goes to everything else. And so I believe that part of the reason why our, our attendance at, at our nutrition classes is fall off is people don't feel the skin in the game to show up for nutrition class. In some, in some respects, Zoom has made it easy, too, because it's like, oh, I'll watch them later. But, of course, then nobody ever does. The other thing you can do to complete the task or make a change is to visualize the end result. So if it's getting off your medication, if it's losing weight, if it's running a marathon, if it's a travel that you want to train for so that you feel good, you imagine, or you want to get healthy so you can travel, it's imagining the finish line. And I'll have people journal and put the finish line, put that goal up every day, and then you back down off of that, just like you would back down for a training plan in a marathon. How are you going to accomplish that goal? And when you train for a marathon, you have a weekly training program, and it builds to the final marathon. That, that works for any goal in that you break that task down. So whether it's get off your medication, what do you need to do to accomplish those goals break that down into smaller and smaller pieces. Because if you look at the big goal, it's often very difficult to see, geez, how am I going to lose 80 pounds? Or how will I ever get off five medications? Or 
They told me I'd never get off my insulin or I'd always be on cholesterol medicine. My back always hurts. And it's hard to realize feeling well or getting off medications when you look at that giant goal of how you have to change as opposed to how do I break this down? Part of becoming plant-based is how do you go out to dinner with your friends? And I've been asked and said it on many a podcast that will my friends ever ask me out to dinner again? Will they ever invite me over again? Do they want to be around me when we eat? I'm not I'm gonna lose all my friends. And there's strategies to go around that, but the reality of it is that most of the time, if you're eating healthy and you traditionally went out to unhealthy restaurants with your friends, they really don't want to see somebody eat healthy when they're going to gobble down chicken wings and, you know, blue cheese dressing. It just reminds them of what they should be doing, but they're procrastinating about. So you at least have to have a group or a support group or some group of people or some contact somewhere that inspire you to take action. And they can be virtual. They don't even have to know they exist. I have all kinds of virtual people that inspire me to do things. Um, I hope to have a couple of them on the podcast here in the future. But if I see someone that's doing something or is doing something that I like to be able to do, they inspire me and I follow what they're doing, and I try to emulate some of their practices. When you're first becoming plant-based, it helps just watching some of the movies. You know, if you watch, you know, Forks Over Knives is the traditional one that most people uh, convert, but, you know, um, Fat Sick and Nearly Dead, uh, Johnny the Juicer, Game Changers, What the Health... There are all kinds of movies that can be inspiring. If you're a big person and you lift weights and you don't want to be a skinny person, look up strength training plant-based people. You know, um, if you're someone that's into cooking, there's many foodie type um, sites that you can look and find beautiful food online that you can emulate in a plant-based way. So you're not losing your ability to be creative if you're somebody that enjoys cooking, I have people tell me that, oh, I liked it. I was a, I was a gourmet chef, and now, you know, blah, 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 blah. And, uh, you know, I, I kind of giggle over that one anyway because gourmet chef to me means fat, salt, and butter. But anyhow, you can find ways to be creative and still be plant-based and still be healthy. And if you can find some people that inspire you that you can either hang out with part of the time or emulate or follow, it does make things, and you don't feel easier and you don't feel like you're on such an island This is where I believe metrics also come in. If you're keeping a journal and you have your goals and you have your plan and you're filling in your progress, then that also helps to keep you moving along. If you're just kind of winging it um, with no real path, just hoping for the best, it usually never works out. And I have a couple examples, um, and you know, which is going to lead me into talking a little bit about atrial fibrillation. Um, one example is I've recently had a couple people in the hospital. Uh, one had to have valvular heart surgery. That's, you really can't change valvular heart disease with plant-based nutrition. Um, the other with an arrhythmia, um, which we'll talk a little bit more about, that perhaps you can change with nutrition a little bit. Um, the one person was spot on, very, you know, um, that had to have valvular surgery. She 
really had her plant-based nutrition tuned in. So this is the way she lived. This is the way she lived her life. She cooked. She loved things. She was happy with it. Uh, she felt good because of it. She was optimistic because of, of, of her, her choices uh, to eat this way. And so when she went into the hospital, she educated the staff on what plant-based nutrition was, because most of the hospital staff didn't eat plant-based. They didn't know what it was. So she asked and for her plant-based food. Her family brought plant-based food into her. She showed them what the food, she talked about the science behind it. You know, so she was very comfortable and positive as she talked about her plant-based nutrition and how it had brought her sustained health. She was, she's an upright, positive person, so she did it with a smile. It wasn't complaining. She was, you know, happy to share her good news with other people. Another person went into the hospital, got served the traditional hospital food, and was very disappointed because, obviously, you order one thing and nobody knows for the most part, what plant-based nutrition is, so you get another thing. So even people think yogurt is plant-based or they think vegetarian is close enough. So they'll serve regular yogurt or they'll serve regular creamer or oats with milk or, you know, bring the eggs because nobody knows where eggs come from. And so it can be very disappointing and see, you know, this is just how bad hospitals are and you can't do anything about it and here we are. So there was an opportunity lost to educate other people, um, and there was an, an opportunity lost to work a problem as far as how do you stay plant-based when you go to somewhere that is not plant-based at all for the most part. Granted, making the transition to plant-based nutrition is not easy, and you can make it as far as being vegan and still stay unhealthy. So you can eat a lot of vegan foods and then slip in a little bit of, again, birthday cake and donuts and things like that, which really don't prove you wrong. Most people don't know what vegan is, so nobody really calls you on it for the most part. Um, and maybe you don't even tell anybody. And so you can just kind of struggle along and, and never ach achieve your goals. So I have a recent example where someone had an arrhythmia that and had to go to the hospital and it was a you know it's never fun going to the hospital and it was an experience that made them never want to have to have that happen again but they kind of went home and did the same thing and stumbled and lo and behold the same thing happened again and they had to go back to the hospital the second time was the wake-up call and oftentimes it does take that light bulb to come on more than once to make a transition and, and from more than one direction. And that's very normal for people. And the question is, does a negative feedback make people change or does a positive feedback make someone change? And so the story is that the person also had a goal to do out-of-country travel. So there was a fear of having this arrhythmia that could cause problems recur, which would result in more hospitalization and maybe something worse, that was driving the change, especially on the second attempt. But there was also the positive goal of wanting to make a change so that they could safely travel out of the country. So it always, you know, the question always comes up, I believe the positive goal is the better 
So if you have a time period, so now procrastination is over. If you don't really have a goal out there, well, I need to change, I'm going to change, but there's really nothing out there making it too imminent other than this fear, and the fear lasts only so long. Even when people have a bypass six, eight weeks, the pain's gone, the fear of dying from heart disease goes away. So I don't believe that fear drives many people to make long-lasting change, nor do I think that doctors can scare patients into making long-lasting change. I think that's kind of ridiculous, and it doesn't really work. I've tried it. Um, you know, when your back's against the wall, um, you try a few things, but I don't, I don't think that it really works. It has, people have to want to do something, and they have to have their own goal that they really want. So the person had this goal, and there's a time frame because there's travel dates. And now we're gonna follow metrics and do feedback and we have a plan and a week by week plan to follow metrics, glucose, weight, rhythm, exercise, you know, a weekly plan. And all of a sudden, in just five weeks, there's been a 17 pound weight loss and an elimination of one medication and starting to decrease other medications and um, new exercise records attempted. So I don't believe it was a negative feedback. I believe it was the goal and then having a plan and having metrics that to want to do something. So if you'd like to do and make a change, I suggest you find a goal. And it should be kind of a lofty goal. And it has to be out there. You know, people say, well, I, you know, I'm going to my high school reunion and it's going to be in three weeks and I need to lose 40 pounds. That's not realistic. So get a plan that's far enough in advance. Marathon training plans are typically 12 to 16 weeks. That's what makes them ideal for life is that you have 12 to 16 weeks but every week counts because if you don't, if you go three or four weeks and you're not training for a marathon, your outcome is not going to be good. So it's the same way with any kind of change and ultimate goal. If you don't use every day as a positive or as every day as a training day, then those bad days will add up and you're not going to reach your goal. So have a goal, make it lofty, make it far enough out that it's reasonable, but then back up and do a week-by-week -week plan and work that plan and really get down into the nitty-gritty. And I think documenting it is, is great. I think keeping track of where you are, what your weight is, what your goal is, what your glucose cells are, what your blood pressure, see how your glucoses have come down, see how your running or walking has improved, and go from there. So the next thing I want to close out on is atrial fibrillation, which is the most common arrhythmia that cardiologists see. Atrial fibrillation is when the top chamber of the heart quivers, and so it beats at about 300 or more times a minute, and the bottom chamber tries to catch up. And the bottom chamber can't catch up because there's a circuit that has to occur. And so typically, depending on how old you are, your bottom chamber could go 150 to 170. The top chamber is like um, it primes the pump, so to speak. So the top chamber, the left atria, the atria will contract and just fill the ventricles so that they're, they're stretched, ready to contract like a rubber band. So you stretch the rubber band right to where it's supposed to be stretched so that you get the maximum recoil and then your heart beats as a recoil and you pump blood to the rest of your body. When the atria are just quivering, you don't get that priming the pumps, so to speak. And so it's like not being able to change gears or a spark plug missing. You can still function, 
and you're not going to pass out, but you might be short of breath quicker because you're not delivering oxygen to your tissues like you should because your heart's just not beating in sync and it's beating too fast. And when your heart beats too fast, it's like running a race. So now all of a sudden you're burning, you're burning carbohydrate right and left because your, your metabolism is off because you can't get enough oxygen to your tissues to burn fat for the most part. So it's a fatiguing, it's hard on your heart muscle because it's a chronic race. It could be for hours, minutes, days. And so if that rate is fast, then ultimately the heart can fail, the heart can change in size, it can dilate or enlarge, blood clots can form. If the blood clots form in the top chamber because the blood is not circulating, it is a very common cause of stroke. So the biggest risk factor of atrial fibrillation is a stroke. For some reason, men don't seem to feel the irregular heartbeats like women. It's postulated that because their chest wall is larger, more muscle, they just don't feel their heartbeat. Some people can feel their heartbeat all the time or when they think about it or they lay on their left side. Other people can't feel their heartbeat. I can't feel my heartbeat if I'm running. I never know if I'm, you know, if my heartbeat's 150, I don't ever feel my heartbeat. Um, I'll try to feel my heartbeat because I want to feel it, you know, um, but I can't feel my heartbeat. But some people can. People that tend to have mitral valve disease tend to be able to feel their heartbeat. They're more in sync. They can feel it easier. Um, but the risk is if you can't feel the fast rhythms and you don't recognize the sign of being short of breath with exertion or not you know, having the oomph that you did, or if you're sedentary and you really don't tax your heart, um, or you don't know why you're short of breath, you can miss this, and if you're not evaluated and treated, you can present with a stroke. Blood thinners, um, there are multiple ones out there that protect against a stroke. The old one was warfarin or Coumadin. It had to be titrated up to a level that was therapeutic, so um, we call it an international ratio of two to three. If it's too low, uh, your INR, it's, your blood's too thick, then it doesn't really work. If it's too thin, there's a risk of bleeding. And it took two or three days to get this titrated up. So in the old days, when pe people had atrial fibrillation, they have to come in the hospital and sit there while we titrated their Coumadin so they got to a level where it was safe to go home. Now there are medications that work a little differently that aren't affected by diet um, and aren't affected by greens. That, and that was the other thing with Coumadin. It was affected by antibiotics because it was vitamin K dependent. Um, so if you changed your gut flora, you changed the production of vitamin K, which would cause your blood to thicken up or thin, depending on how much you ate um, or didn't eat. But the new medications don't depend on, so they're not reliant. You don't have to worry about what you eat. As soon as you take the first pill, you're protected, which makes it nice. So often we'll give people, um, you know, th the blood thinner to have. If they can feel their atrial fibrillation, they take it, and then they're protected. And then there are various antiarrhythmic drugs, medications to try to prevent the atrial fibrillation or get people back in a regular rhythm. But quite frankly, they're not that good. So the drugs that are the safest with the least amount of side effects are also the ones that are probably least effective. So we're talking 60%, 70% efficacy of maintaining a regular rhythm once this atrial fibrillation starts. And so sometimes people have it once, and then they may not have it for another couple years, maybe five or six years, and then they may start having it more frequently, and then they have it every day, and then they have it all the time, they can't get out of it. Um, and so what's the cause? 
So just about like everything else in allopathic medicine, most of the time we don't really tell people what causes it. And we say, oh, it just happened. You're getting older. You got atrial fibrillation. Um, we'll treat it. We'll put you on blood thinner. Take this medicine. We'll can, you know, we'll, if you get, if, if, if the rhythm comes back, we can shock you or, you know, do other things. But, you know, once it starts, you pretty much, this is you. One of the biggest causes of atrial fibrillation is high blood pressure, and certainly a lot of people have high blood pressure. Uh, most people with high blood pressure aren't told that, hey, you need to get this under control, and you'd like to reverse this because this could lead to atrial fibrillation. So we put people on blood pressure medicine. They may or may not take it. Their blood pressure may or may not be controlled. Doesn't really change why they have high blood pressure, so the vascular changes that they have continue to progress. The heart has to work more, the heart chambers start to dilate, particularly those upper chambers, left atrium, and atrial fibrillation occurs. Another reason uh, that used to be the most common reason was valvular heart disease. So back in the day when people had scarlet fever or rheumatic fever from strep uh, infections, they um, would have typically a narrowing of the mitral valve or a narrowing of the aortic valve and because the heart had to work harder to get blood through these valves the top chambers would enlarge and they would get atrial fibrillation so if you've ever seen the commercials for blood thinners they'll say you know um, in non-valvular atrial fibrillation but that is usually much less the cause now um, sometimes people get valvular heart disease because they had high blood pressure and their heart starts to enlarge and the valves don't really go together. It's like the door doesn't really shut. And so that's a little bit different. Lung disease, chronic obstructive lung disease, smoking, sleep apnea, chronic lung infections, asthma, change the pressures in the chest cavity, uh, which ultimately can cause enlargement of the heart chambers. Uh, there's change in the the pressure in the lungs, and that can ultimately lead to atrial fibrillation. So maintaining good lung health, not smoking, um, is a good way to prevent atrial fibrillation. People that have sleep apnea, um, take being on a CPAP machine will fix the apnea, which often fixes the arrhythmias. Being on a CPAP machine doesn't fix sleep apnea, it just fixes the symptoms of not breathing. Ultimately, people need to lose weight, and um, that can often eliminate sleep apnea. The other thing is breathing te uh, techniques. We've um, mentioned, and we've had Patrick McGowan on the, on the podcast with the Oxygen Advantage um, that talks about different ways of breathing, uh, using your diaphragm that can ultimately help um, with lung disease and oxygen transfer, and that could lead to a decrease in atrial fibrillation. But a lot of people, um, and of course then the other one is body mass index. So being large, being overweight uh, puts more stress on the heart. The capillary density of adipose tissue is immense. So the more tissue you have, the more blood flow you have to have to that tissue. So the bigger you are, the more your heart has to work so it's like if your heart is the central hub of your entire transportation system of arteries in your body, 
it's like taking over another city if you have a lot of vasculature from being overweight. So your heart has to pump a lot larger distance. Ultimately, it's a lot of stress on the heart. The heart enlarges. Atrial fibrillation can occur. So people often call and say, I have atrial fibrillation, and I'm plant-based, and I don't want to take any medicine, so I want to come and see you. Can you, can you fix my atrial fibrillation? And the answer used to be pretty much, well, if you've got it, chances are you've got it, and we can't change it. The other thing that causes atrial fibrillation uh, in some people is thyroid disease. So an overactive thyroid can ultimately stimulate uh, the heart and, and drive sympathetic tone and cause atrial fibrillation. Um, and I, you know, didn't put out, you know, the other, another reason before I get, go on the, can we fix this? Alcohol can be toxic to the heart. So people that drink, um, holiday heart is, um, what we used to see around Christmas time when people drank a lot, binge drinking, um, their heart would actually become somewhat poisoned by the, the electric system would become somewhat poisoned and cause atrial fibrillation. So, and certainly cocaine, any, anything that increases sympathetic tone, uh, adrenaline, diet pills, um, ephedra, some of the uh, diet pills in the past that, you know, get people hyped up with a severe amount of caffeine. There are some herbs that cause people's heart rate and metabolism to, they become very hyper, those can cause atrial fibrillation. So diet pills in general are very dangerous for heart arrhythmias. So how can we fix this plant-based? Um, well, it helps us to control some risk factors. So I wanted to just, you know, go over a, a couple studies that are actually recently done. Uh, one was published in the Journal of American Cardiology Association, and they looked at people um, with their body mass index over 27. Um, there were 1,400 patients. There were 825 people eligible to look at whether or not weight loss would help with atrial fibrillation. So this it was interesting to me. Um, 1,415 patients were eligible for the study. I'm sorry, there were 1,415 patients in, in, in this cohort. 825 were eligible because they had a BMI greater than 27. 355 accepted coming into the study to see whether or not weight loss would actually help. So 43%. Um, in group one, that was greater than a 10% loss of body weight. In group two, there was a 3 to 9% loss in body weight. In group three, less than 3%. And so what they noticed was that the number of atrial fibrillation episodes and how long they lasted and how fast they were was affected by people's weight loss so that if you lost greater than 10% of your body mass index at a BMI of 27 or greater, you had much less atrial fibrillation episodes and they were much less severe. If you lost 10% or more of your body weight, you were six times more likely to not have arrhythmias in the study follow-up period. If you had yo-yo type weight loss, so lost weight, gain less, lost weight, and you, and you fluctuated greater than 5%, you had a 2% increase, I'm sorry, a two-fold increase of having the arrhythmias to recur. So we see this often that people have 
yo-yo effects on diet, nutrition, salt intake. So if you go out and have a high sodium diet and you retain fluid, it changes the dimensions of your heart. It stretches, can trigger atrial fibrillation. If you get profoundly dehydrated uh, by going the other way, then you can also trigger an episode of atrial fibrillation. So marked changes in volume. If somebody were to have a significant amount of blood loss, they could too. But typically, again, this yo-yo pattern of nutrition, good nutrition, bad nutrition, high salt, low salt, weight loss, weight gain, is hard on your heart. And more likely, you're more likely to get atrial fibrillation. There was another study that looked at if you got your risk factors under control, the ones we talked about, hypertension, body mass index, diabetes, diabetes is also associated with increased risk of atrial fibrillation, smoking, um, coronary artery disease, optimizing cholesterol. If you got those risk factors under control, would you decrease the incidence of atrial fibrillation? And so they actually followed people for 17 years and they noted 1,512 cases of atrial fibrillation. The thing that blew me away in this study was that only 5.4% had the risk factor control optimized. So we spend all our time at, as physicians treating cholesterol, treating blood pressure, telling people to lose weight, telling people to exercise, telling people to take their diabetes medicine, and the reality of tra traditional medicine was successful in this cohort, this, this study population of 5.4% at getting people's risk factors under control. So it shows you how little benefit that we are, how little success that we ultimately have with traditional, here's your prescription, go lose weight and exercise, advice works. 10% of people, uh, 10% of white females got their risk factors under control, but only 1.6% of black males got their risk factors under control. Most likely that was due to follow-up. 56.5% of the atrial fibrillation cases could be explained by greater than one risk factor being out of control. And the most important one was hypertension. So hypertension not being controlled was the number one reason why people got their risk back, uh, their atrial fibrillation episode. When we admit someone to the hospital with high blood pressure and put them on a awful hospital low sodium DASH diet of about 1,800 milligrams of sodium, most blood pressure gets better almost immediately. And we're backing off on medication. So people can come in on three, four, five medications, and all of a sudden, just a couple days of being on a restricted salt diet, their blood pressure goes away. That's how easy it is to fix blood pressure in most cases. And we can't do it in the traditional medical society because if you go to my favorite restaurant to pick on, Chick-fil-A, you get two grams of salt. You know, uh, you go to an Asian restaurant, you're getting tons of salt. Uh, people, if you go to a Mexican restaurant, everybody has high-sodium beans, high-sodium tamari. So people that eat out a lot are getting a tremendous amount of salt, which drives blood pressure, which drives atrial fibrillation. The last one, when we talk about nutrition, is what happens if you change your diet to a plant-based diet? I don't know if you can hear this in the background, but we're having a thunderstorm. It's pretty impressive. Sophie is under my desk. 
So they looked at a paleo diet versus a plant-based diet. And what they found was that, and this was published in the Journal of American Heart Association, that if you were on a low-carb diet, you had a higher incidence of atrial fibrillation, which was based on how many plants you didn't eat, basically. So whether you had a low-carb diet that had more protein than fat or more fat than protein, it didn't matter. It, the lower your carbohydrate intake, the higher the atrial fibrillation rate. And reason being was that the higher the fat, higher the protein, the less that you have these race factors that we talked about in the other cases controlled. So if you're eating a paleo diet, you're getting more fat, usually more salt, um, driving your blood pressure, driving vasoconstriction, driving vascular disease, which ultimately drives atrial fibrillation. So it's not so much, and certainly when we eat kale and beets and cabbage, we increase the nitric oxide production, we dilate blood vessels, we increase the supply of blood to the heart, so that's a calming effect to the heart. But not only is eating plants calming to the heart, but taking the other things away and taking the insults away, just like everything else in the body, for the most part, if we take away the bad things, our body can heal itself. So if you're early on into atrial fibrillation or you've had an episode or somebody you know has atrial fibrillation or you have a family history that you think that's a family history of atrial fibrillation, it's probably more likely related to how you live, how your family lives, um, what you eat, risk and, and overall other factors that are associated with atrial fibrillation. So getting these under control early is a good way to avoid atrial fibrillation altogether. Certainly there are therapies, and I'm not going to go into the therapies today, such as ablation, well, the medications and ablation. Um, uh, there are things that you can put in the heart to prevent the blood clots from um, going into what we call the left atrial appendage. The various successes and uh, certainly ablations have become, uh, but they're, they're invasive, you know, they're not without risk, uh, they're not without recurrence. It's always better to keep your original equipment in tip-top shape. So if there's ever a takeaway message from my practice of medicine and what I've observed over the years and what I'll say in this podcast is your original equipment is always going to trump any replacement parts, replacement procedures, and everything you came with, you really need. So you should try to keep as many of your parts as you can and keep them working well. And your body will repair things for a long, long time if you don't abuse them to the point and neglect them to the point of no return. So I hope that this was a little bit informative. I hope you have a plan, get a calendar, get a journal. Uh, the dollar store sells, you know, those little, I really like those little essay uh, composition books that we used to all have to write in in grade school back when people used pens. Um, you know, grab something down, journal your goals, get a positive one, make a plan, work your plan, control your risk factors, and you too can be free of arrhythmias and keep your parts in working order. Thanks for listening. You can always email me at jamie at drdelaney.com, J-A-M-I at drdelaney.com. My website is drdelaney.com. It's D-U-L-A-N-E-Y, not um, people get that confused sometimes. Um, you can check out our practice, see what we have to offer. 
Uh, if you want to run a marathon with us, we'll be running the Stewart Marathon in March as a group. So we'd love to have anybody that wants to come and be a Plant Strong Marathon runner. Um, look into our practice, see what we offer. We can help you get your goals, uh, whatever they are. They don't have to be running or marathons, but it's a pretty cool thing to do if you want. Thanks for listening. See you next week.